Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I am really excited about what God uh, wants to speak to us this morning. I want to begin with a question, and the question is this. What is the most important thing in life to you right now? Like, what is the most important thing in life to you right now? For Tom Brady, according to the news, playing football at the age of 45 was more important to him than his marriage to Giselle and living in the home of his two children. So last year he chose, he made a choice to choose the Buccaneers and not the Bradys. And when he chose the Buccaneers and not the Bradys, unfortunately the Bucs season ended early again this offseason or postseason like it has every other postseason. So now what is Brady doing? He's now officially retiring and what has he been doing? You saw in the news. He's doing everything possible to recontact his wife Giselle and to reinstitute the marriage. He's doing everything he can to get back with his family. Now, unfortunately, none of us, we play football in this room for the NFL, so we don't know what it's like to trade the NFL for our families. But we do trade things in life, and we make decisions daily with our time. We'll trade time with our family for building a business. We'll trade time with our family for traveling outside the home. We'll trade time with our family for binging on Netflix. We'll trade time with our family for swiping endlessly on Instagram. We'll trade time with our family for swiping endlessly on Facebook. What we want to see today, what we want to see this morning, I want you to see that that maybe your marriage looks healthy on the outside, but if you really put a finger on the pulse of your marriage, you would realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. And what we're going to decide, let me, let me say it this way, what we're going to determine over today as we look at the closest relationships in our life, what we're going to be determining is how can we actually be present with the closest re- relationship we have, which is our marriage. So if you're not married in the room, I know what you're doing. You're saying, look, oh, great, really, a marriage sermon. I'm not married. Well, first of all, it's something you really need to learn if you are married, okay? Maybe you were married and no longer married. You're single now, something to learn. Maybe you're desiring to be married in the future, something to be learned. So there are some lessons that I think all of us can learn this morning. But I want to talk today about how we can be present in our marriage. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12 is we're going to look first. And we're going to study Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28 and following. Now, here's what we're going to do today. Jesus is going to be asked in two different gospels by two different leaders, two different questions. And he's going to give the very same answer to these two questions, which is fascinating, right? Two different questions, two different leaders, two different gospels, and yet Jesus gives the exact same answer to both questions. And in those two questions, we can determine how we can actually be present in our marriage. Mark chapter 12, start with me, verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. One of the scribes approached Jesus when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? So basically, what is the most important thing in life for me and you as a follower of God? 
And Jesus said, the most important thing is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, or the Lord the Lord, is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice what Jesus said. There is no other command greater than these. So this morning, I want to give you two insights about relationships, but really essentially about love. Okay? Number one, you're taking notes, write this down. Love is a decision. Love is a decision. It's a decision. You ever thought about that? Love is a decision. Now, we talk at Dwelling Place a lot about this, and it's biblical, it's true, that if we want to affect our horizontal relationships with people around us, we first must check our vertical relationship with God. I tell new couples when I counsel them, which now is a lot and has been a lot for 20 years. I celebrated my 21st spiritual birthday Friday, by the way, folks. I got born again February 10th, 2002. So I turned 21 on Friday. And, um, and I've been at it in counseling couples really for 19 of those years, 18 of those years. And when I tell new counsels, I meet with them, I would say, hey, <clears throat> you need to love your wife less than you love Jesus. Or another way to say it is you need to love Jesus more than you love your wife or you need to love Jesus more than you love your husband. Why? Because when your love for Jesus, right, to be loved by God and to love God, that then affects every other relationship in your life. So the natural question becomes, okay, Craig, can a person be commanded to love? Like, can I command you to love? What does the text do? Jesus is commanding you what? To love one another. And so the answer is yes, but only if love is a decision. Do you see why love has to be a decision? Because you can be commanded to do it. You can't be commanded to passively fall in love with emotions. Love is not emotion. Love is not passive. Love is a decision. It's a thoughtful decision. It's a decision one makes in their mind. It's a decision one makes in their heart. So the question then becomes, can I love somebody that I don't like? Or better yet, can I love someone and not be emotionally attached to the love that I'm extending? The answer is indeed yes. Because Jesus said, if you remember, love your enemies. Remember this? And pray for them. So think right now of the kind of person who's slandering you in the community. Think of the kind of person who's out to get you at the workplace. Think of the kind of person that's out to destroy you. Think of somebody who is out to get after you and Jesus commands you to love them. Meaning, the love he's talking about here is not the giddy kind of tingly feeling butterflies in your stomach. Boy, I get to pray for them. Man, I just love this. No, no, no. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about here, you and I as believers, listen to me, should be able to extend kindness to another person and at the same time, simultaneously, being able to live upright, righteous in our own lives. Meaning, we should be able to balance love with truth and couch it together. Now, if you watch this week's Sunday Q&A, I shared with you that truth without grace is fundamentalism. Grace without truth is sentimentality. This is why John 1.14 says Jesus is full of grace and truth. He embodies grace and truth. Now, Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, pastors, he said concerning these two topics, I want to give you this quote. He said, we must be as Christians compassionate while at the same time being righteous. Notice this. He said, if you're compassionate and you're just feeling sorry for folk, you might be unrighteous in what you do. 
But then he says, but if you're righteous, meaning living by a standard, but you do it without a heart, then you tell people the truth and you're ice cold in the process. We've encountered both types of people, have we not? Yeah, but notice what he said. He said, when you're compassionate and you're righteous, people know you care, but they know you have a standard in which you care. Meaning you're going to call wrong, wrong, and you're going to call, you're going to call sin, sin, and you're going to call right, right. But they know, watch this, you're seeking their good in the decision. This is the best line from Tony. This is the best line. You love them whether or not they know that. I'm going to set some people free this morning. They don't have to know that you love them if you really do love them. They can do and misinterpret all they want to misinterpret. But at the end of the day, if you desire their well-being and you're communicating that you desire your well-being and you know your intention to know your well-being, you can be set free from trying to win them to the reality of whatever reality you want to win them to. You're righteous and compassionate. Righteous and compassionate. You love them, why? Because it's the desire of your heart and it's the motivation of your life. Here's the way I want to describe it to you. Look at me. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. What does that mean? It means love is not only a decision you make to extend to someone, it's a demonstration of your life. So number two, love is always demonstrated. Love is a decision and love is always demonstrated. What does that mean? It's not just decided on, it has to be de demonstrated. Now, I told you we're going to study two different gospel passages to determine what Jesus is teaching about us love, right? So we looked at the first one, Mark 12. There's a passage, the expert comes to him, asks him a different question. He answers the question. What's the greatest thing in the world? What's the greatest way to live? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God, love others. Now, watch this, different question, same answer. Luke chapter 10, watch this one. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, an expert in the law stood up and tested him saying, teacher, rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Different question. Now, I don't have time to explain all of this, but, but I'm gonna say this. Eternal life is not just talking about life tomorrow and the spiritual by and by and heaven out there somewhere. Remember, I preached to you about this in John 17 a few weeks ago. For the Jewish nation, eternal life still today is how to live life everlasting today. So eternal life is not duration, it's quality of life. And so he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so the question is, notice what Jesus says. Bow your head and repeat a prayer after me. Does he say that? Does he say, pray and ask me into your heart? Now again, not, not just trying to beat that up, not against that, but notice what he says. What, well, how do I live eternally? He said, what is, what is written in the law and, and how do you read it? Basically, what is he asking? He's asking, hey, how do you interpret this? And he answered him. Watch what the guy answered him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Basically, the same thing we read in Mark 12. And then what does he say? And love your neighbor as yourself. What does Jesus say? You've answered correctly. And here's the line. He says, do this and you will live. Do this and you're going to really have life. But the, the person, the expert trying to justify himself, notice what it says, asked Jesus, well, who in the world's my neighbor? Okay, Jesus, I get it. I understand love God, love neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Now, the key word here, church, is neighbor. What do you normally think of when you hear neighbor? What comes to mind? What's the guy who never takes his trash inside after trash pickup day, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's out in the middle of the road. It's the lady on the street that knows everything and everyone on the street knows that if you tell her anything in secret, it's going to be all down the block, right? 
Or it's going to be all over the neighborhood Facebook page, right? If you live in a neighborhood, don't join the neighborhood Facebook page, all right? You thought, you thought the HOA was bad. Don't, don't join the neighborhood Facebook page. That's normally what we think of when we think of neighbor, and that's part of it. But I want to give you a new translation of when you see the word neighbor next time you read your Bible. I want to give you a more robust understanding of what Jesus is trying to teach when he says neighbor. Are you ready for this? You ready? Neighbor is the nearest one. Nearest one. What does that mean? Nearest and closest proximity to your life. The person who is the closest to you right now in your life, if you are a husband in here and you're a wife in here, apart from your relationship with God, who is the nearest neighbor, it is your spouse. It's the person you're married to. So let me ask you a personal question. Look at me. How's your marriage going right now? How's your marriage going? Would you say in the room right now you're growing closer to your wife or your husband, or would you say you're drifting further apart? Now, every person is on a path somewhere because you cannot stay idle in the marriage. You either have to get closer together or you have to get further apart. You can never stay parallel. Now, the statistics tell us that divorce today is rampant in our country. It's always been. We could study this, don't have time. Really started getting rampant around 1981, probably because of the fruits of the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. You had a lot of things happening culturally. <clears throat> but I'm gonna give you a couple statistics. You ready? <clears throat> Someone is divorced every 36 seconds in America. That equates to 876,000 divorces a year, roughly 16,800 divorces since last Sunday, 2,400 divorces today, and roughly 55 couples will be divorced before I finish this sermon. The divorce rate for those their first marriage is 41% in America, first marriage. When you go into a second marriage, that number jumps to 60%. If you go into your third married, you are likely to divorce 73% of the time. That means if you get married three times, three out of four of the third relationships end in divorce, 73%. Do you want to know what the top calls or one of the top causes of divorce in our country right now? One out of every three divorces happen because of an online affair. It's about 36% of divorces happen because of online communication. Now, I've realized this. Online can be good. You can leverage it great ways for Jesus and the gospel, but there's obviously a lot of challenge with being online, right? Because listen to me, all re relationships require what? They require time. They Listen to me, they require an effort to grow. What do I mean? You don't drift into romance. Let me say something clearly. You do not fall in love with someone. You can't fall in love with someone it is, and you don't migrate towards intimacy. It is a targeted, active, intentional process of two people working together for the best marriage they can have. So, so here's what I want to do together in our time together. It's going to be a very different kind of sermon, okay? I'm going to give you some practical steps to a healthy marriage. And again, I'm preaching to me. I'm going to share with you my own failures. So don't think, oh, he's got it figured out. I'm going to preach to myself I'm learning in the process, but before I give you the practical steps, 
I want to share with you how we can clearly define marriage. We need to define it, right? We really need to define it as a culture. So let's go to the book of Genesis where we looked last week, and let's define it, then let's talk through some practical tips. Someone once said that marriage is like uh, flies on a screen door. There are those that want to be in, those that want to be out. And those that are out want to be in, (laughs) and those that are in want to be out. Now, I don't know if you're in or out, but if you're in a marriage, I'm praying you're going to stay in a marriage. But why is it that so many people who began a marriage relationship with such good intentions end up so miserable? I've never met a couple that planned that. I've never met somebody who said, you know, my goal in life is to get into a a miserable marriage relationship. I just kind of want to die that way, just, just in misery. And yet, so many people end up that way. I just shared the stats with you. Now, because of those stats, look at me, church. It's causing people in our our nation now, especially social scientists and people who examine this, to wonder if the idea of marriage itself over a period of time is even reasonable. So now the language in our culture is marriage, that's the word they're using. Is it reasonable to ask young couples to make a lifelong commitment when they have absolutely no idea what they're getting into? Is that reasonable? Right? That's what the culture's asking. Is it even reasonable to say that marriage is a possibility? We got our work cut out for us. Is it reasonable to ask two young people to stay committed for a lifelong? Well, according to the Washington Post, an editorial said this, I quote, a reasonable level of divorce may be a symptom of a healthy and mobile society. So now it's not only not reasonable, it's healthy to divorce. Why? Because we have a transient upward mobility culture. This is what it said. Long marriages are simply not natural. Is it not possible that the ideal companion for your younger child-rearing years does not have to be the same ideal companion for your middle and later years? That's where we are as a culture. So this author, along with many other authors, are saying, it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable to ask people to do that. You can't expect people to make a lifelong commitment. This is why, by the way, a lot of people, Gen Zers, are opting out of the marriage altogether, not even doing it. So just having a partnership of some kind. So let me give you this stat, the Pew Research. This is this week. We're talking about right now. 40% of the people that were studied overall said they believed marriage was obsolete. And 31% of those people were married. Enough of the bad news. Let's talk about the good news. The good news is though marriage is on the endangered species list, it's not doomed. I see every week plenty of good examples of solid, vibrant, flourishing, long-lasting relationships, but you got to know it doesn't just happen, right? It's not automatic. It's the deliberate result of determined people willing to make it work with God's grace and strength. So Genesis chapter 2, there's only a few verses I want you to notice today. Can I just teach you something real quick? Genesis 2 is called a passage of primary reference. You're going to need to know that culturally. A passage of primary reference means it's the first time something is ever introduced in Scripture. And so when you're talking apologetically with people at the workplace, you need to know the passages of primary reference. That means this is the time in the Bible God first said anything about it, okay? And so you need to know that for each category that you're talking about. What is the passage of primary reference? So why do we know it's the passage of primary reference? Because four times in the New Testament, the author or speaker refers back to this passage of primary reference, okay? Now look at it, verse 22. God brings the woman, Genesis 2, he fashioned to the man, and Adam said, it doesn't sound all that romantic, but follow with me. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's his opening statement. First date. (laughs) 
This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Remember, we hit that last week, verse 25. Now, in verse 23, look at it in your Bible. Adam gets all poetic. Can you look in your Bible and tell me if it's the same as mine? It's out in a little stanza. It's a little poet. It's a little poetry off to the side. Phrases are stacked up. It's different from the rest of the narrative because verse 23 is the first poem in the Bible. The first poetic quartet or couplet, and then it goes right back to narrative form. Now, interestingly, I want you to see this. Scholars have noted that there's a rhythm to this statement. So this first statement in the first moment Adam ever spoke to a woman, it has what they call a two-beat rhythm. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And the second line has a three-beat rhythm to it. I'm not going to do it for you, all right? I'm not going to do it at all. It's just interesting, right? It's sort of like this is post-creation rap. If Taylor Simons was in here, we, we got T-Flame. Yeah. T-Flame would be in here for us. So, so he sees this woman brought to him, and he starts breaking out in hip-hop. He, like, sings a song for her. That's what's really what's happening. This is like, this is like a, a rap. You say, really? That's the first thing he says to her? It doesn't sound too romantic. Well, let me just tell you something. It's hard for us to get the emotion. It's really hard to translate. So we're told that right here, the Hebrew from English misses the whole capture of this. So there's an emotional component to what Adam says that's missing. And so a very loose translation, if I can give it to you, Hebrew would be this. As soon as God brought the woman to the man, Adam said, wow, now this is it. This is the one I need. That's, that's the best way we can translate it. There's this emotion attached to it. He sings to his wife. His song is basically, it's not just Adam anymore. It's Adam and Mrs. Adam. We're the Adam's family. That's his song, right? John Calvin translate that verse this way. Look at it on the, on the screen now at length. I have obtained a suitable companion. Now listen, to, this, is, this is perfect English. Who's part of the substance of my flesh and in whom I behold, as it were, another self. I like that one the best. I see another self. I've only seen myself. Now I see another self. Now look at the next verse, and you'll understand marriage comes in three parts. Can I hit them for you real quick? Leaving, cleaving, weaving. Marriage is three things. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. Let's begin weaving. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother. That's how marriage begins. Watch this. Marriage begins by severing one relationship to solidify another relationship. What does it mean to leave your father and mother? It does not mean abandon your father and mother. It does not mean say, mom and dad, never want to text you, never want to write you, peace out, never going to email you, don't come over, can't see the grandkids. That's not leaving and cleaving. Watch this. It means to cut the cord of dependence on mom and dad. It means the moment a man gets married, he has a new first loyalty. Have you ever heard of that term, first loyalty? So young man and young woman in the room, you're getting married. That means from now on, watch this, your first loyalty is not to your mom and dad. Your new first loyalty is to each other. So it means, watch this, to establish an adult relationship with your mom and dad. You have to establish an adult relationship with your mom. You have to establish an adult relationship with your dad. It means your parents have to give you space to solidify that relationship. I always ask young couples, same question. What do your parents think of you all getting engaged? And it's usually, oh, they love him. Oh, man, they think she's great. Every now and again, I ask that question and I get, eh, dad thinks he's a creep. 
And I say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm still going to marry him. And I just tell them, that's fair. That's your choice. Just understand something. Your parents' view is going to complicate the rest of your marriage. How so? When you get into a fight and things get really tough, you're going to now, because your parents spoke it to you, think of the ideal image your parents had of the perfect guy you should marry. And you now want to try to change the guy that you're married to to the image of the one that they told you before you married him. Now we're in trouble. Now we've got an issue. Now something emotionally has come up. I've discovered that some kids never leave their parents emotionally. They're still attached to their parents emotionally, sometimes dependent on their parents monetarily. Sometimes a a marriage is even held hostage by parents. So just a note real quick to parents who have kids that are about to be married. I know it's hard. I got three of them coming. But we have to release them. We got to let them go. But, but, But the second definition of marriage is cleave. It's also leaving, but it's also cleaving. Now, look, notice the verse. I'm not making these up. This is what the text says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, literally cleave to his wife. So marriage, watch this, requires a deep, determined commitment of permanence. That's what joins means. Now, I'm reading to you from the translation I've chosen, New King James. The common word used in these versions is to join together. Okay, let me give you my opinion. That's a weak translation of this verse. To leave father and mother and then to be joined is just a little too weak. It doesn't capture the Hebrew meaning. If you have a King James Bible, you got the word that really captures the Hebrew meaning. What is that word? It's you are to cleave to your spouse. That's better. That's a strong translation. Leave and cleave. Leave and be joined weak. Leave and cleave stronger. Why? Because the word is dobak. Dobak in Hebrew literally means to cling to or impinge upon, meaning it's really strong. Watch this. Debak is used in the first century world to talk about following hard after or sticking on something. You're sticking to it. The idea is permanence. The idea is an indissoluble kind of union, right? You're glued, you're welded, you're stuck. That's how people feel, by the way. I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm glued. Yep, that's all you are, right? Now that brings up the question, does that mean there can be no separation under any circumstance? No, there are two circumstances in the New Testament where that union can be dissolved. I'm not gonna go into that. I preached a whole message on those two schools of thought. You can go back and listen to it on the podcast. There are two reasons why biblically people can be divorced. Adultery, desertion of the marriage. Show me one, listen to me. There are those two circumstances, yet never can that marriage be dissolved without damage. Show me one divorce where somebody's not damaged. I have never heard of one. I've never seen one. If you took two pieces of paper and literally did what it says here, glued them together and let the glue dry, you have one flesh. You have one unit. If the next day you looked at the thing you made, the gluing of the two pieces of paper together, and guess what you did? You said, I'm going to separate them. I've changed my mind. You could do it. You could even get a razor blade and and very deftly, slowly cut between the paper and remove it. But let me ask you a question. By the end of the day, once you had taken them back apart, are they as the same as they were before they were glued? Have they been changed dramatically? Yeah, they don't even resemble the first entity. Why? Because you can't be divorced without damage. So the idea of leaving and cleaving is that they become one now. There's a permanence there. Today, the idea of permanence is all gone in our culture. God has given us his blueprint in the word. It's here. We've come along and redrawn the blueprint and added a back door. It's called a divorce door. So yeah, a couple still says their vows every week. They still say they promise to be faithful unto death. But with some, I can almost hear it under their breath. Almost. Unless there's a glitch, I'll be married. 
But cleaving means that the husband is saying to his wife, I'm faithful to you even when you lose the first blush of your early beauty. Even if you're untidy around the home. And the wife is saying to the husband, I'm going to be faithful to you even when you bulge around the center and you get bald on top and you go into ministry and we get poorer instead of richer. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it. That's the idea of cleaving. That's the idea of, so that's what marriage is. It's leaving. It's cleaving. Third is weaving. So notice verse 24 continues, and they shall become one flesh. Please notice the word become. It does not say they will instantaneously on their wedding day after they take their vows be flesh. It takes time. In fact, it takes a lifetime. That's why it's the word become. Now look at this. Meredith and I are in many ways similar. In other ways, we are bipolar opposites. We have similarities. We both relatively have strong personalities. Relatively, we'll say. We're both leaders. We all both have a type A kind of communication skill thing going on. We're both teachers, but we're very opposites. I'm very spontaneous. She's not. She's very planned. I'm messier. I would just say I'm messy, but I've been married now for 15 years. So that's diminished a little bit. I'd say I'm messier. She is much tidier. I am mostly right. She's always right. About got you there, didn't I? Now, now, when it says they'll become one flesh, watch this. At the basic level of interpretation, it's speaking of a physical sexual union, coming together, producing a child. Listen, a child is the one flesh amalgamation of the two. The child is the, is the, the explosion of love between two people. It's the result of that love. But it means more than that. It means you share everything. You share your bodies. 1 Corinthians 7 says the man's body does not belong to him anymore. It belongs to his wife. 1 Corinthians 7 says the wife's body belongs to her husband. You, are, you share bodies. Your bodies are shared. You share possessions. You hopefully share insights with each other, right? That's one flesh. Wayne Mack in his excellent book on marriage said, I'm quoting, it's the type of relationship that is shared with no one else other than one's mate. It's a partnership in every area of life for as long as both partners live. In other words, there's absolutely nothing about which one spouse can say to another, that's none of your business. The wife has complete and unfettered access to every area of her husband's life. And the husband has unfettered access to every single area of the wife's life. There are no secret hiding places and there are zero locked doors. Now again, that's not instantaneous. It's a lifelong process. Take a guy who throws his socks in the sink, made him up with a woman who irons paper napkins and get them on the same page. Good luck. How does that happen? It happens by leaving, cleaving, and weaving. I want to put a picture in your mind. Maybe this will be helpful. Maybe it's not. It's helpful for me. Look at the Eiffel Tower. It's iconic. It's in Paris, right? Everybody who goes to France wants to see the Eiffel Tower. Did you know that the Eiffel Tower was originally built to last 20 years? 20 years. Did you know that? So it made it through year after year after 20 years. It made it through World War II. Then Adolf Hitler, you know what he said? Tear it down. And his governor in the era refused to do it. It's withstood year, decade after decade. It stands. Why? Because there are people who work on the Eiffel Tower every day, all the time. Did you know this? There's never been a day someone's not worked on the Eiffel Tower. 
This is what happens when you go visit it. What are they doing? They're adding a weld there. They're adding a weld there. They're adding a weld there. They're tightening a bolt there. They're replacing a nut there. They're always working on the Eiffel Tower. They're constantly adding points of strength. So when we talk about marriage, there's a crew that's working at all times. There's a well there. There's a nut there. There's a bolt there. We're going to give a point of strength there. We're going to, and over time, it becomes immovable. It doesn't become immovable at the altar. It becomes immovable over decades because we keep on welding. So, so husbands and wives are like two welders. I'm going to start using this at all of my, my ceremonies. Guys like this illustration. Chicks, not so much, right? I'm a welder. I don't like that. Well, in the sense that you're going to spot weld over here, you're going to tighten that bolt over there. This thing is weaving together over time. But listen to me. Ch- listen, marriages are not held together by chains. I've heard guys say those stupid remarks before their buddy gets married. Oh, you get married, get the old ball and chain, huh? The old ball and chain. You're a prisoner of war. Listen, a marriage is not held together by chains. It's held together by threads. That's why the more years you get, the more threads you get. When you only have a few years, you only got a few threads. You can break the threads real quickly. You can pull them apart very quickly. But tiny threads that are woven every day, every week, every month over years make it absolutely immovable and strong over a lifetime. So what is marriage? Marriage is leaving. Marriage is cleaving. Marriage is ultimately weaving. Now let me give you some practical tips. Number one, guys, if you really want to impress the lady next to you, you just write them down. I mean, just get the phone out. Do something right here. Communicate. All right, number one, practical steps. Corners, notice this. Communication is the cornerstone of a healthy marriage, right? Communication is the cornerstone of a healthy marriage, meaning everything is built upon communication. Are you upset with me? Nope. You're not speaking to me? Yep. What's wrong? Nothing. Now, I know that never happens in your marriage. But I've heard of some marriages like that. Right now, here's what you got to understand. Before you can repair a marriage, there has to be a revelation. Watch this. Watch this. You can't repair what has not been revealed. So communication is essential to a healthy marriage. So I want to give you a little math. Can I give you a little marriage math? Revelation of a problem or an issue leads to a repentance of the couple, which then can lead to a restoration of the marriage. So we can't repair that which is not talked about. Right? You can't weld together something that's never communicated. So the revelation of the problem, the issue, and remember, repentance is not just what you do when you first come to Jesus. How often should you repent, by the way, every time you what? Sin. You keep doing it, don't you? It's daily. You're consistently repenting. Every marriage hurt is healed through repentance and confession every time. And you never get beyond that mathematic. It has to happen over and over and over. So every time you sin, you turn away from it, right? So, so revelation, repentance, and remember, then it leads to restoration. So I want to give you an illustration that I think will help you out about, <coughs> excuse me, why revelation is so important. So you're all familiar with uh, Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson in our nation, powerful guy, especially as it relates to dynamics of relationships. He gave a talk on marriage that I listened to a while back, and he talks about a children's book, one of his favorite children's stories, which is called There Is No Such Thing as a Dragon by a man by the name of Jack Kent. Did y'all read this book growing up? 
No Such Thing as a Dragon by Jack Kent. It was a pretty insightful book for being a children's book, I do admit. The story goes like this. I'm going to show you some images of the book, okay? The story goes like this. There's a young boy by the name of Bixby, excuse me, Billy Bixby. And little Billy realizes one day that he finds, show this first image, a cat-like sized dragon on his bed. And he's blown away. It's, it's small. It's a dragon right at the end of his bed. And he's like, wow, a real dragon. Never seen a real dragon before. And he notices that the dragon's pretty friendly. And so he goes to his mother and he says to his mom, mom, there's a dragon in my bedroom to which his mom says, Billy, there's no such thing as dragons. What are you talking about? Well, the story goes on that the, the dragon starts to grow and he starts to grow big because he starts eating all the pancakes that fall on the floor and he starts to eat all the crumbs that fall on the floor from Billy under the rug. Before you know it, he starts to fill the whole house out. Now, leave this image up. The dragon grows so much, it becomes so ridiculous in the story because mom, who is oblivious to the dragon, doesn't even recognize his presence, is just vacuuming around the tail. And she has to go out around the house. It takes more time to come in a different door because she can't get down the hallway. And she is admitting there's no such thing as a dragon. Well, the story progresses. The dragon gets so big that the dragon now feels out the whole house and he actually picks up the home and walks the home because his hands, his arms are outside the windows. He walks the home all the way down the street, right? Now, it's relocated in a new place. So dad kind of walks up to the place, his empty, vacant lot. And he's like, where's my house? He looked at the mailman and says to the mailman, where is my home? And they say, oh, your home got moved down the street. Well, he walks down the street. Dad climbs up the neck of the dragon and he uses the neck of the dragon to get into the window. In a dragon sprawling himself out on the street, he rejoins his wife and his son. And at that point, mom is still insisting there is no such thing as a dragon. To which Billy has had enough at this point, And he screams out of the top of his lungs, Mom, there is a dragon. And immediately when Billy gets her to acknowledge the dragon, the dragon instantly shrinks back down, shrinks back down to the size of a cat. And so now it's a cat again, cat size, and the family's kind of sitting around the table talking about after the fact that they love that he's now back down to cat-like size. And they agree to two things in the book. Number one, dragons do exist. And number two, they are much more preferable at the size of a cat than the bigger size of the genetic counterpart, counterpart that he was. Well, after the dinner conversation, mom looks to Billy and she asks this question. She says, Billy, why do you think the dragon had to get so big? To which Billy responded, I don't know, mom. Maybe he wanted to be noticed. Maybe he wanted to be noticed. Look at me. When problems in your marriage are swept under the rug, the dragon devours the crumbs and what happens five years ago begins to grow into this bigger dragon that gets bigger than your wife's control and bigger than your control. And what I mean by this is it's unspoken hurts from the past. It's past trauma in your life. It's coarse words spoken by your husband or wife in anger. It's family dynamics coalescing together through years of addiction and rehab. And it's inappropriate relationships that happen that you try to minimize or justify. It's unresolved fights in the marriage. It's a thousand 
thousand other unaddressed issues which you've kept quiet about, you've hidden, you've put under the carpet. Listen to me. A marriage does not dissolve overnight. It is a slow fade of inattention to the person that you made a covenant with before God. Because the enemy of love is not hate. It's neglect. You just stop noticing. Why why did it get so big? You know what they say, friends? The average person contemplates divorce for two years before they file. Pastors are brought in on about month 23 and expected to perform a miracle. They're contemplating for two years. And I want you to see this because I know what you're thinking. Well, it's not really a big deal. We can just work it out later. We can kick it down the road. Well, okay. Unaddressed hurts in the marriage are like burying someone alive only to have them come back to life down the road at the most inopportune time. So instead of saying to your spouse after you have a disagreement or they say something to hurt your feelings, don't do this. Don't say, you know, babe, it's all right. It's not worth fighting over. What you should say is this. I love you too much to not tell you how you deeply hurt me. That's what you should say. You should say, hey, I care about you too much, honey, to let this root of bitterness grow in my heart, of anger, something you said years ago. It's what you should say. Now, let me disarm some of the guys for a moment. I'm not saying you go home this afternoon and you put all the laundry on the bed when you get home and share everything. Wives don't expect that. What I'm saying is there needs to be communication. Here's what I'm saying. You ready? The most intimate relationship in the world is your spouse. And to neglect, watch this, to neglect and not see them as a treasure is a tragedy today. You got one wife, you got one husband. So might as well make the best of it. Amen? Might as well invest the most you have into that relationship. So listen, number one, the communication is the cornerstone of a healthy marriage. Let me hit something really, really quick. Next slide. When you grow up without healthy examples of love, the first work that you really have to do is to learn to love yourself first. Now listen to me. The most invisible epidemic that's hitting our nation right now is a society of adults that are in arrested development. So we have children walking around in adult bodies looking for love that they never got from a parent. Now you can imagine what a child does when he marries a spouse. He's in arrested development looking for love from a parent that he ever got, and now he's looking for that love from a spouse. You have to learn first to love yourself. Now, let me speak to you about self-love, because this is what I say to people in counseling. Self-love, don't get me wrong, it's not self-obsession. Self-love begins with self-respect. So the first thing I always tell somebody if you don't love yourself, self-respect begins with keeping promises to yourself. So the first homework I give to somebody is if they have no self-love, I say, you need to make some commitments this week that you have to keep to yourself. And if you don't keep them, then you don't respect yourself. And so if we know you can't respect yourself, you can't love yourself. Well, if I can't love myself, I can't love my neighbor, right? And on and on, right? So self-love begins with a sense of self-respect, okay? We were driving through Lincoln to North Carolina yesterday, and my kids in the back seat, they're at that age where it's so hard to kill pride. And so we had a long dissertation and I just told him, listen guys, you're gonna have to understand it is not about you getting your way and you getting your word. The er the earlier you let Jesus rip this out of you, the better off you're gonna be. Listen, son, did I tell you I pastor people in their 40s who are still trying to win arguments, still trying to fight for their territory. 
the earlier you can die to your pride, okay? But you know Gary Chapman has love languages, doesn't he? You know the five love languages? And I told my kids, what did I tell you, Knox? Blame is the ego's love language. See, ego has a love language too. It's called blame. So if anybody's always blaming and shifting, it's because they have ego. And that ego is usually rooted in the fact that you don't love themselves. They're personally insecure. So when I'm constantly shifting and blaming and everything's outside of me, that's ego. That's the love language of ego. But when I get this healthy sense of self-love and self-respect, listen to me. When was the first time you realized you were looking for love from someone who didn't love themselves? How old were you? You were looking for love from somebody who didn't love themselves. Well, how would they love you if they don't love themselves? How you love and care for yourself shows up in every relationship you have in your life. So codependent families. And again, I know this is sensitive stuff. Codependent families teach us that love is transactional. So, So listen, nothing is given just to give. It's given to get something in return. So I grew up learning as a young kid, I don't give just to give, I give to receive something. So if you're counseling people in your life and the majority of the relationships are toxic, toxic, it's worth asking this. What did, what did you witness before the age of seven? Because we learn love from what we see and we might have some unlearning to do. So if every relationship in my life is toxic, it's pretty clear in my reality that what happened? And I, I witnessed some, some things that I need to be set free from. Here's number two. Find ways to display our love for our wives or husbands. Now, the key word, and I get this from Jesus here, is Jesus said to the religious leader, do what? Live now. What does that mean? That means that love for another person that's not expressed is, is suppressed. A love that does not um, result in a, an action or equate to action is a love that's wasted. That's what he's saying, right? So I want to challenge you to do this. Like, when was the last time? This is a kind of radical idea, by the way. The lost art of letter writing. Can I speak to husbands and wives for a moment? Y'all remember a pen and paper? Y'all remember those things, pen and paper? Anybody? You want to, golly, you want to blow people away? Write them a handwritten note in the mail in America. But let, let me ask you, when was the last time you wrote a, a wife, a letter, a note, anything physical, and just said, babe, this is how much you mean to me. Hey, sweetheart, this is how much you mean to me. When's the last time you wrote something to your spouse, a little note hidden in your wife's lunch or hidden in her car console where she has her cup holder or, or you just gave it to her? When's the last time you took a post-it note, easy one, wrote something, I love you so much, you mean the world to me, put it on the wall, put it on the mirror. Before she gets up, you go to work, then she sees it. Simple things. And listen to me. I want you to see that little thoughtful acts add up. And this is where for my marriage, I've been so terrible it's like pointing, putting coins in the marriage bank that over time produce these dividends of love. Any idea that communicates that you had a thought that she's special to you and she means the world to you is a simple act that goes a really long way. Number three, write this one down, big one. Date your spouse. This is hard, isn't it, with kids? Whew. Well, I thought we were married. We don't need a date. I know that's how you live for 20 years, but let's help you today, okay? I don't, I, I, what do you mean date my spouse? Well, listen, some of you I know have kind of drifted apart in your marriage relationship, so let's do something real quick, and I'm going to land this plane. We're going to maybe do some reintroductions again, okay? So here's what I want you to do. 
If your spouse is in the room, all right, I want you to look at your spouse if he or she is there, and I want you man first to look at them right now and say, hi, my name is Craig. Now, don't say Craig, okay? <laughs> don't say Craig. So that'd be weird. That'd be real weird, okay? So say, hi, my name is, and just say that to them, okay? All right, everybody got that? All right, ladies, look back at him and say, hey, you remember me? <laughs> now, now, here's what I want you to do, okay? Remember just for a moment the first time you started dating your husband or wife. You remember those days, ladies? I mean, your husband back then, when he took you on a date, he actually took a bath or a shower before the date. Man, he actually tried to like rub and scrub down and, 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 and smell good. He brushed his teeth right back. Right back then, he put on deodorant. I mean, God forbid, he might even sprayed a little aquadigio on or cool water or Tommy Hilfiger. Listen, guys, you remember your girlfriend back then? I mean, she went out to the store. She picked out a nice outfit to wear to the new date. Listen, baggy sweatshirts and joggers were a thing of the past. Can I get an amen from the guys, okay? There were no baggy sweatpants and joggers, okay? This is like cute outfit, constantly presenting yourself to the date, right? Come on, maybe that's a personal one right there. Guys, you remember those days. You used to make reservations for your girlfriend at the chop house. Y'all remember the old chop house for steaks? Now I got diverticulitis and can't eat beef. <laughs> now you take her to the Waffle House for smothered, scattered, and covered, and dipped, and chunked, and tossed. Right? That's what we used to do. We used to take her to the movies, let her pick out a gift. Now you let her sit on the couch and get the Netflix pick. Right? She gets the choice of what's actually being watched, right? Here's the problem. Look at me. I know I'm, I'm using humor, but what happened? Think about this. Think about this. This is what happens. You stop dating your spouse. You just stop caring. It's not a priority anymore. You don't make an effort anymore in the marriage. You stop planning dinners. You stop planning trips. You stop planning dates. And by the way, man, if your wife is the one who has to book the dinner reservation every time you go on a date, you know what you're communicating without communicating? This doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm good with it. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. I know I'm real busy. I'll go with but, but you're not planning. Some of you, listen to me. I don't want to be over-challenging, but God's challenging me. So I'm going, to, I'm going to let you be a part of my challenge. Some of you had better conversations last week with a customer about your work than you did with your wife or your husband about your life or your kids. You felt more emotionally connected the last seven days with a person other than the spouse. You will break your neck to impress people outside the home that don't give two cents about your future and at the same time neglect your kids and wife who will be there for you in the nursing home. You see the problem here? So we made a commitment. I want to give two secrets away. One to the men, one to the ladies. I'm going to start with ladies. Two practical things, ladies. You need to know about us, men. Your husband needs constant encouragement from you. He is not going to tell you that. He will never tell you that. He needs constant, listen to me, he needs to be told he's doing a good job. He needs to be reminded he's really doing something you see in his life. And so let me ask you, when's the last time you told your husband, I'm so proud of the man you're becoming? I didn't say, I'm so proud of what you did. When's the last time you looked at him and said, I'm so proud of the man you're becoming? And I know you're not perfect, but I see you trying, and I'm so thankful God allowed us to be married. 
When's the last time you said to your husband, I'm so grateful for the investment you make into our kids, the, the time you spend with me, and I just want to say you're a good dad. You are, you are really good dad. That's a great line. When's the last time you took a time and said, hey, you're a good dad? Now, now guys, be honest here. We got to give her something to compliment, okay? You can't just expect this. Okay? Now, guys, let me tell you something about your wife. This is a great secret to learn. You ready? The best way you can show Jesus is real in your home to your kids is not from the messages you preach. It's not from the Bible sermon. All that's good. The greatest way you can demonstrate to your kids that Jesus is real is to love their mama. That's the number one way Jesus will be shown in your family is by the way you love their mom. The gospel gets displayed because the Bible says the gospel's preached not when dads lead devotion. It says the gospel's preached when the head of the home, which is Christ, and the wife, which is the church, come together and love one another as Christ loved us. That's a picture of the gospel. So what does it mean to love their mom? It means you hold her hand. When's the last time you just held her hand? Right? When's the last time you just walked down the road holding their hand? I mean, let's be honest. You put your arm around her. Take her on a trip. Find somebody to watch the kids. Can I get a hallelujah today, Jesus' name? But we have to be proactive, right? I want you to start. It's a radical idea. You ready? Listen to her when she talks. Here's some really good questions. When was the last time you asked your wife, tell me about your dreams, babe? When was the last time you asked her, hey, tell me about your goals. Tell me about your aspirations. What's your needs and wants in this season of life? Guys, listen to me. Why does it always have to be about us? And I'm speaking to myself here, Craig. Why does it always have to be about us? Why does it always have to be about what we're going through? Now, Meredith and I don't follow this perfectly. I told Meredith, this is a threefold model that I want to use in our marriage, and we, we, are, we, we need grace just like everybody else in this room. I want to give you a threefold model. Number one, dialogue daily. Dialogue daily. So what does that mean? Find a time every day, if it's dinner time or after, where we're going to find out, hey, the kids are going to try to interrupt, and you're going to have to intentionally say to the kids, I'm talking to your mother right now. I'm not throwing the baseball with you. I don't do that. I fell at that. Because I think it's about balance. It's not about balance, actually. It's about communicating to the kids they're not more important than the spouse. And they need to know that. You want to ruin your kids? Let them run the family. Kid-centric families destroy kids. Okay? So you look at me. It's not time for you to talk right now. It's not time for me to interact with you. I'm interacting with your mom right now. We want our kids to see this is the most important relationship. We dialogue daily. Number two, date monthly. Some of y'all, it's date weekly. We can't do that in this season of life. Date, date monthly. Whatever it is that you enjoy. Third one, depart quarterly. For some of you, because of finances or the season of life, it might be depart yearly. Some of you, you can't depart quarterly, just you and your spouse. But you better be departing just the two of you, no kids. We did this for the first time in an extended period of time when we went to Maine last September. Unbelievable the emotions that we had towards one another. Day after day. You have to get away from your kids. You have to do it. You have to get away. You have to create space. There has to be boundaries. Has to be. It has to be. Because the commitment in the, the relation, a, a healthy marriage requires that honesty and hard work. So I'm going to ask the team to come. Two years ago, we were on our, our marriage retreat that we did as a, as a church. <clears throat> and um, they offered a ministry kind of survey that was seven questions about your marriage. 
And when we were going through them, the first one, man, he set me up pretty good. First ones are pretty easy. And uh, he's like, how old are you? We were at uh, Lake Lanier Islands. <coughs> I guess it was three years ago, three February. Pretty simple. How long have you been married? Oh, 13 years or 12 years at that point. That was easy. You know the time. But I will tell you, even that second question, when I stopped to answer the question, I realized, man, the longer you're married, the easier it is to take your, grand, uh, your spouse for granted, isn't it? It's easy to really just begin to move into this. Very easily, the third one was how satisfied are you with your marriage? And I was like, man, I'm pretty satisfied. I got a great marriage. Well, y'all, the fourth one's the one that nailed me to the wall and the fifth one where the wheels came off. I felt like, felt like Pharaoh's army. The fourth one was on a scale of one to 10. This is the question. Remember, how satisfied are you? Number four, how would you rate yourself as a husband? Like, how would you rate yourself, Craig, as a husband in the marriage? Zero being no pulse. You don't exist. Five being average. 10 being, she would say, you are her knight in shining armor. Well, you know, we're sitting there together, Meredith and I. I don't want to be too presumptuous. I thought, well, maybe 10, you know. I'm probably a 10, but maybe that's too strong. So I'm going to say eight. I mean, eight and a half, probably eight and three quarters. Maybe nine and a quarter, right? And so I kind of just put down eight. Just to be conservative, you know, eight plus. And then the next question I wasn't prepared for. Go and ask your wife to tell you what she would rate you as a husband. And I went to Meredith thinking that she would affirm my disillusions about myself. And I, hey babe, we're doing this survey. Go ahead, tell me on a scale of one to 10. Zero being no pulse, five being average, 10 being knight in shining armor. Where would you rate me as a husband? And I won't tell you what Mayor said. I mean, it was, it hurt me. It's like, that's, that's failing. I've ne- I'm, I'm straight-A student. I've never failed in my life. Okay, we're not old scale. Like 69 is a failing, right? 70 is a C. 69 is, it, you're, 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 you failed the class. And so we had this moment of exchange, and I said, okay, like we've done many times, where can I get better? Well, I'd like to spend more just time, just you and me. I'd like for you to help out more in this way. The thing that she needs from me is words of affirmation. I need you to give me words of affirmation. I need to use your words more. I wonder today if you would go home after church and ask your spouse. I know how I rate me on a 1 to 10, but how would you rate me on a 1 to 10? And then get the response and then look them in the face and say, Hey, what can I do to go up? What can I do to up the ante? How can I improve? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.